And uh, even as I was preparing my message for today, just the uh, providence of God in the timing of this series and the message today couldn't help but see some ways in which it kind of fits together a little bit. As uh, we've heard about this compassionate ministry of, of Miracle Hill, of reaching out uh, in so many ways, what I really appreciate about the ministry is it's all with the purpose of communicating Christ, first and foremost. You know, Jesus said when it comes to poverty and problems, he says, you know, the poor you will always have with you. So if your program is just to try to fix the economics of someone's life or the material problems of their life, uh, you're fighting a losing battle. You're fighting a losing battle. On the other hand, you can also be quite uh, low in this world's goods and be quite rich in the world to come, in the things of Christ. We don't measure our wealth, hopefully, with a earthly measuring stick. Hopefully we understand that it's most importantly that we lay up treasure in heaven. And I think of so many verses that, that come to my mind about how we do minister to people. We love on people. We care for people. It's crucial that we do that if we are really going to love Christ as we should. For instance, it says in Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially them which are of the household of faith. We ought to always be looking for those opportunities where we can say, Lord, how can I reach into this person's life and serve them? And obviously the priority is, especially if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're part of the household of faith. But that extends beyond that to people who are lost, people that don't know Christ. The Bible tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And what better way for them to see God's goodness than from people that are his children being light in their darkness, in salt, in their savorless life. And that is a, a wonderful opportunity to serve in that way. Another verse that comes to my mind is Hebrews 13, 16. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. In other words, on a horizontal plane around those in our lives which we touch. Uh, it's easy to forget. It's easy to become careless, to get caught up in our own lives, to have way too much me time, if you would. And so the warning is, to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, our sacrifice of our time, our resources, God is well pleased. So again, we hear this theme that we're going to be looking at in this text that Pastor Stan read for us this morning, that if I want to please my God above, the sacrifice isn't burning up a calf and that aroma wafting up into the skies it's my sacrifice for my fellow man the bible says that's the kind of sacrifice god is well pleased with today and you know it's a great joy really to serve others 
in so many different ways. In other words, God is worshipped as we demonstrate care and compassion to those around us. I mean, when you're, when you're in the name of Jesus Christ with a prayer in your mind and on your lips, taking some baked goods to the neighbor next door who's recently lost a loved one, because you're just not really quite sure what to say, other than say, listen, I'm so sorry for what you've gone through. I want you to know I'm praying for you and your family. You, you may not be aware of the seed that is being sown there, but the compassion that they can see with your testimony of uh, perhaps already knowing that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or at that moment being able to share with them about the change that Jesus has made in your life. And as we do that, God is worshipped. God is well pleased with that sacrifice that we make. However, people's material and financial needs really are, are small in comparison to their spiritual problems. It, it might be that person that is put in your path and you're, you're on the fence about helping them when they say, you know, hey, I need, I need food. And, you know, we do have to be wise and careful sometimes about enabling people that might abuse that, ultimately, that's going to be upon them. You know, you can't necessarily police every activity and bad decision someone makes if God puts something on your heart. But sometimes, you know, it might be, hey, I'll go buy you a meal, and I'll, let me share you my story about how Jesus changed my life. And so they need a meal, right? They need a meal, but, but they need, we know, even though they may not see it, and they typically don't, right? We know that their real need is Jesus Christ. You know, you're going you're gonna to get hungry again for another meal, not to say that you shouldn't have a meal. But it's like Jesus said, you know, water, yeah, but let me tell you about water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again, right? We understand that dynamic. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're reaching out because they don't know the, the care for Christ if we don't communicate it to them. In our text today, Jesus will address two different groups. If I can help you with what we read today, uh, Jesus, depicted as this king, is segregating two different groups they're pictured in animal form as being either sheep or what? Goats. Sheep or goats. And then there is the addressing of them in, in very parallel ways, but separately. And the way he talks to them is about that treatment that they gave or did not give to their fellow man. And so it sounds a little bit repetitive, maybe, as we heard the scripture being read in our ears today, the king saying, hey, this is, this is how you did this for me. You, you fed me when I was hungered. You took me in. You visited me, all this. And then the surprise, right? There was a surprise. When did we do this for you? And then he explains, you know, when you did it to those I care about. And then he does the same thing with those that didn't do it. 
Hey, this is where you failed to do this to me. When, when did we have that opportunity? When you could have done it to my fellow, man, my fellow man, my brethren, and you didn't do it. And then the differentiation of the outcome of treatment from the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of this. So Jesus addresses these groups and speaks to how they responded to his hunger, his thirst, his homelessness, his illnesses, his imprisonments. And no one remembers him personally being in those predicaments. You know, you can almost imagine, right? Do you remember that? You know, do you ever remember that time? Am, am I just having a senior moment here? You know, how did that get past me? But the riddle is unlocked, as we said. First of all, in verse 40, where he says, hey, it all comes down to what you're doing to others is how it touches me. Now, who are these groups? Who are these sheep? Who are these goats? Well, since we're in the context of the Olivet Discourse, right, we're in Matthew 24 and 25, as we've been walking through this series, one of the things I've pointed out to you over and over again is how the context was set for us. It has a very decidedly initial focus on a Jewish audience. Not to say that there isn't relevance for all of us, because there certainly is. But to get the, the first and foremost interpretation of what's being said here, and then to apply it to us, we need to understand that it has this Jewish focus here. But also, not just Jewish people, but Jewish people talking about at the time of Jesus' return. So we're talking about the second coming of Christ is what's happening here. This is going to be the treatment of the Jewish people during the time of the great tribulation. Remember the tribulation? Seven years, the last three and a half years, we call the great tribulation, also time of Jacob's trouble. It's during that time, see the first three and a half years, Things were pretty hunky-dory, if we could say it that way. Because the Antichrist, who's the world ruler, the man of sin, he is a friend, at least outwardly. He presents himself as making a covenant, helping them. It's that midway point that he presents the abomination of desolation, desecrates it, wants to be worshipped himself, and turns on the Jewish people. And now they're being martyred, they're being persecuted, they're being chased through all of this. Now, how are they going to make it through three and a half years if they are marked people? And the answer is they will need refuge and assistance from others, much like the Jews needed during Hitler's regime, his genocide. You might remember the, the description of what... Hitler referred to as the final solution, which was a patently offensive way to shroud the fact that he was going to ma commit mass murder of an entire ethnicity of people. And did. Millions were killed just because that they were of the seed of Abraham. And of course, we are not stupid about this. We understand that this was driven primarily by the agenda of Satan behind all of this. 
But during that time, there are stories that rose that were not limited to just someone like Corey Ten Boone, who wrote the book, and there was the movie called The Hiding Place, which we have even shown here, where you had these people, Gentiles, that took compassion as believers upon the Jewish people and created a safe haven, a hiding place in their own home for many, many years until they themselves were discovered and put in POW camps themselves. And so it's that kind of setting that will probably be replayed during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. There will be those that will come to know Christ as their Savior. There will be those two witnesses that will be set forth to preach the gospel. There will be those 144,000 witnesses that will go out and share the gospel. There will be people who will come to know Christ during that time period, both Gentile and Jew. But remember, the Jews will be of a particular mark, although everybody will be who does not receive the mark of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. And so this setting of what's happening here is taking place leading into the millennial reign of Christ. The king is having this this time of dealing with these people. Tribulation's over, talking about it in the past tense and what took place, and now getting ready to walk into the millennial kingdom. This is also described as a judgment of all nations in verse 32 of our text, right? And and before him shall be gathered all nations. Well, interestingly, this is referred to in the book of Joel, chapter 3, and verse 2, where God says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will lead with them there for my people and my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my lamb. You might ask, where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, I have described it in past messages without referring it specifically to that. It's also known as the Kidron Valley. And so if you were standing on the Mount of Olives and looking across the valley in front of you to the city of Jerusalem, you would be looking at the eastern wall, the eastern gate. In Jesus' time period, you would see rising above the wall the amazing manifestation of Herod's temple. There will be a rebuilding in some day in the future during the tribulation, another temple by the Antichrist. Right now, if you take a look at that view, if you go to Israel and stand on the Mount of Olives, what you'll see is another religious facility, which is what we often refer to as the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim mosque that is there. That will disappear at some point in time, and there will be another Jewish temple that the Antichrist will put there. But it is in that valley that Joel is talking about. So the tribulation has ended. We're getting ready to walk into the time of the millennial reign for Christ. And there's this massive gathering of individuals standing down in this Kidron Valley. It's interestingly enough that right now, what is filled in that valley are tombs and graves 
of people, Jewish people, that have passed on. So standing in amongst that kind of setting, which no doubt will probably still be there at that time, this of what Joel is talking about will take place. But what does he mean when he says nations here in the book of Matthew? We might think of governments. We might think of countries and entities. Are we going to see rulers of of countries and nations standing here? The Greek word behind the word nations that we have here in verse 31 is actually the Greek word ethnos. We get our English word what from that? Ethnics, ethnicity, right? All of that uh, comes from that word. And in our King James Bible, though this word is often translated nations, more times than not, 93 times to be precise, the word ethnos is translated as Gentiles, has a specific reference to non-Jewish people. So this is not necessarily a judgment of countries. It's not a nationality issue because God is never going to grant complete admission into the kingdom an entire people group. It's always based upon individual response of the soul to his creator, to his savior, right? We understand that. In other words, I may be in a country that calls itself a Christian country, and we can debate the validity of that label these days, right? But even if it were so, even if you could go start your own country, and you could make Christianity the national religion and put laws on place. Let me tell you, folks, just being a, a citizen of that country will not guarantee you admission into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The soul that sinneth it shall die. And the only way to be saved is by calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We understand that. So this is a judgment of really... Uh, Believing individuals versus non-believing individuals. Specifically, the non-Jews are in focus here, the Gentiles. The charge by God is the dispersing of the Jewish people and dividing of the land that he had given to them back in Joel, right? That's what he's saying here. Hey, for, for generations, this world has not been a friend to the Jewish people. I gave them a land, I deeded it to them, and yet the world has not supported to the degree it should have. The Gentiles have not supported their right to that property. And we see that, don't we? We see that. We're even still talking about, well, the right thing is a two-state solution. They need to share what they, they have. You know, you have a home that you live in. Would you like the government saying, I'm moving another family in there. We're going with a two-family solution for what's going on. You'd be pretty uptight about that. It's like, well, you know, this has been deeded to me. You don't have a right to impose that. But, you know, we need to ultimately see that this is reaching beyond a mistreatment of the Jewish people. It is trivializing the authority of God and his covenants. I mean, if God said, this belongs to them, and they belong there, then out of respect and reverence for God, 
there needs to be a close adherence and respect for what's being said there. And so this is what God is telling through the prophet Joel to tell to the world, listen, there's going to be a judgment because over the history, the Jewish people up until the end were not treated as they should have been with regard to what I promised and covenanted with them. These actions through the ages are not just against the children of Israel, but against the God who made the covenants with them. Make no mistake about that. There are some who believe that, the, that God will grant them access into the kingdom merely because they're, they're citizens of a, a supportive country of Israel. I love it when I hear things about America supporting Israel. I was thrilled when... Uh, America, our president, decided to say we're moving the embassy of the United States of America into Jerusalem, you know, where it belongs. We acknowledge the sovereignty of that country. That's a good thing. However, notice that those who are admitted into the kingdom in verse 37 are described as the righteous. The righteous are the ones that are being described here. These righteous correspond to the sheep that was mentioned earlier in this discussion. It is only righteous people. But wait a minute, you say. There is none righteous, no, not one. Yes, on the topic of our own righteousness. If I have to stand before Christ someday and ask and plead for admittance into heaven based upon my morality, my goodness, I don't have a chance, and neither do you. I like what Paul said in Philippians 3.9 when he teaches that we must be evaluated in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be looked at as just ourselves. We want the Father to be looking at the Son. And not, as he put it, having our own righteousness, Paul put it this way. He says, it's not about my own righteousness, which is in the law. You know, trying to obey the Ten Commandments, not going to get there, right? Just not going to happen. But instead, what? That which is through the faith of Christ. My dependence, my reliance on what Jesus did. He's the righteous one. The righteousness which is of God by faith. Will people be admitted into God's kingdom merely because of their acts of kindness to the tribulation Jews? You know, Caleb was talking about there being the soup kitchen there in the Greenville area. And the woman, thankfully, I mean, we thank anyone who has a kindness for other people, but was more of a humanitarian in doing that. You know, just giving out soup because she cared for people. That's not the same thing as giving out soup in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the people that are eating the soup, they, they might be, you know, in their uh, innocence, just as appreciative of in either case. But what we do, we understand we're doing it primarily to bring glory to God, right? It's a sacrifice to him. And so if people in the tribulation, and I could imagine there would be people that just say, oh, those poor Jews, nobody deserves this. And so maybe they don't listen to the two witnesses. Maybe they don't listen to the 144,000 witnesses. 
and they never trust Christ as their Savior, but they show compassion to the Jewish people during the tribulation period. Those people are not going to be in heaven if they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. They, they don't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, and no amount of kindnesses is going to generate a self-righteousness, which will give them admission into heaven. We know that the Bible tells us that it's not about personal merit or individual righteousness. Titus 3.5 says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. So people who assist the Jews during the Great Tribulation will themselves be in jeopardy of the Antichrist wrath. We know that. The most plausible explanation, say, how, how do you look at this? If he, it sounds like, hey, you did kindnesses to my, my Jewish brethren during the tribulation, so that gets you access into heaven. The real answer is that the only individuals who are going to really risk their own safety in the, in the sense of worshiping God are those that have experienced the redeeming grace of God themselves. The benevolence seen in this passage is not a requirement. Let's put it this way. It's not a requirement for entrance into the kingdom. Oh, I need to be kind to the Jews so I can get into heaven. That's not what this is teaching. Instead, it's a quality that is seen in the lives of those who are already transformed by God's regeneration. It's because I am a child of God. I am born again that I look and say, wow, I know that God cares for the Jewish people. They are the apple of his eyes. He's made covenants. They've been broken off. They're going to be grafted back in. If my father who has adopted me to himself cares for them, how can I not care for them as well? That needs to be our theology. That needs to be our doctrine. That will be what takes place for these people that are described as the sheep in this passage. The groups are separated first by their identity. That's how the chapter or the text began, right? First of all, it wasn't about their performance. It was, hey, are you a sheep or are you a goat? There is a, there's a definite demarcation there, isn't there? Sheep are not goats and goats are not sheep. So it's about their identity, not about their activity. We could put it this way. They do what they do because they are who they are. Just let that sink in a little bit. That helps us to understand a lot about people that we bump up against every day, including ourselves, by the way. We do, they do, what they do because they are and we are who we are. This is the essence of what James is teaching concerning faith without works is dead. He was never advocating, James was never teaching, oh, you got to work yourself into heaven. And if I don't see you having good church attendance, if I don't see you helping out in the soup kitchen, you know, you're not going to tip the scales and get into heaven somehow. That was not what he was just saying, hey, you show me, you're talking about a a faith without works, you know, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead being alone. If you really do have faith, authentic faith, live faith, 
It will work. It'll be active. It'll be compassionate. The final verse makes the outcome very clear. There are only two options in destinations. There's everlasting punishment or there's life eternal, verse 46 says. The goats on the left hand, according to verse 33, will be sent to perdition. While the sheep on the right hand of blessing, because that's often very Jewish, right? We're talking about a Jewish context here. And to the Jewish mindset that's hearing this, like the right and left were very essence. This was not just a political statement where we talk about right and left, although that probably comes all the way back from the original Jewish way of thinking, the right hand of blessing. And by the way, there was the right and left of the mountains of blessing and cursing as Moses was talking to the Israelites as they were preparing to go into the land. And so here are the, the sheep, the blessed of the Lord, going into life eternal, the goats on the left, cursed without Christ, going into everlasting punishment. John Walvoord, commentator on the book of Revelation, wrote this, A utopian world will follow the colossal failure of man's attempt to control human history. Talking about the Antichrist. Three judgments will have purged the world of all who have not believed in Jesus Christ. The armies of the world will have destroyed on the battlefields of the Middle East. Unbelieving Jews will have been judged and killed. In the judgment of the sheep and goats, unbelieving non-Jews will also have been purged from the earth. And the entire adult population of the earth which remains will have experienced regeneration through faith in Jesus Christ. So there will be this segmenting. There will be no in-between. So what is the takeaway? You say, you know, Pastor, talk about the rapture happening before even the, the tribulation takes place. So either I'm going to die as a believer and enter glory that way, or Jesus is coming for me. So why do I sort of even care? about all this that's going to happen. Well, we, number one, we have a compassionate spirit for what Christ cares about, first of all. But how do we put it into daily practice, even in the here and now? So what is the takeaway? Well, first of all, while the teaching of this text of treatment is about Jewish people has a primary future focus of a post-tribulation time, the principles have relevance for us even now, right? I mean, God is the same. And the way he wants his people, his followers to behave is the same. So all Christians should right now be pro-Israel because God directs us to be so. I mean, you walk away and say, yeah, they, they better be pro-Israel by the time they get to here. No, we better be pro-Israel right now. We better love the Jewish people. It's not only taught here, Genesis 12 and verse 3, when God made the original covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families, regardless of ethnicity, we could say, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, we know that that has particular significance in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yes, Jesus was Jewish, right? He had Jewish parents. His lineage is rich in Judaism. And yet, his coming and his sacrifice was because God loved the world so much, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile. This is one of the reasons why, because we want to have the heart of our Heavenly Father and the love for the Jewish people. Okay, how can we do that right now? Well, as a church, we support things like Shalom Ministries in our missions program. Brother Craig Hartman, here not too long ago. What is that? Not, not just a, a ministry to, to help them in material ways. We're not just Zionists trying to resettle the Jewish people in their homeland. That's fine if people want to do that. You know what we're most interested in is helping the Jewish people be settled in their eternal homeland. And that won't happen unless they come to grips with who the true Messiah is, that he's Jesus Christ. He's already come. He's already died for sins. He fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. And so as believers, we need to have a heart for the Jewish people. We need to show the kindnesses to them, predominantly by sharing the gospel. There's a second takeaway, and that is that there is no middle ground when it comes to God's judgment. Did you pick up on that? There's a right and there's a left. There are sheep and there are goats. There is perdition or there is paradise. There is no purgatory. While many people would like to think of themselves as some sort of hybrid, sheep-goat, right? The Bible doesn't make any allowance for that. It's an either-or with God. It's very black and white. You know, we live in a culture, and I don't think it's any mistake that our culture pushes against the simplicity of two neat categories where there ought to be two neat categories in whatever we're talking about. And there comes this idea of, of creating an indiscriminate number of gradients, a scale, if you would, and be allowed to pick anywhere you want in, in the middle area, and that that is a valid decision that anybody can make. And I'm not just talking about on one topic. I'm talking about in, in many different issues. It plays into the mindset of how people think. And it is a pushing back on God as the creator, as the rule of the universe, and saying, well, you can imagine that if you want, but I'm just telling you, when, it, when it's going to matter, it's all going to boil down to two issues. Either, and either you are or you aren't. When you talk to someone about how they're preparing their soul for the afterlife, I get something that has this sheep-goat hybrid type mentality. What do I mean by that? Now, how do you think, you know, if you, if you were to die and stand before God in heaven and he would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And the person might respond like this, well... I've tried to be a good person. I've, I've tried, you know, I, I'm no saint, you know, but I ain't the worst person in the world either, right? 
What are they describing? They're trying to picture themselves as this sheep-goat hybrid, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not all right, but I'm certainly not all left either. And that sounds very almost humble and meek, that they're not boasting of their, of their righteousness. But they're not also owning their wickedness either, are they? But they're allowing themselves to be deluded by the lie of Satan. And the point is, is there'll be that demarcation of separating wheat and tares is another example Jesus used on this front as well. And so we need to realize that this is something that we're dealing with in the here and out in our witnessing as ambassadors of Christ. And we don't do people any favors if we don't help them come to that understanding of, no, there is an in-between. Let me show you what the Word of God has to say. You know, so where, where do you fall? You know, the, the Bible says that all, all transgressors shall have their place in the lake of fire. Transgressor is someone who breaks God's law. Can you tell me one of God's laws? Well, thou shalt not lie. Have you ever lied? Yes. Well, you're a lawbreaker, so where are you headed? You may not be that rapid about it, but we need to get people there in our communication with them if we're going to have compassion. There's a third takeaway, and that is Jesus Christ deserves our loyalty and love, our life. We're reminded of his faithfulness to his word to bring about what he said would come to pass. In other words, the Son of God is ever faithful and deserves you and I to be committed followers. The thing is, even if we are unfaithful, the Bible says he still remains faithful. He never misses. He's never absent when he's supposed to show up. He never fails to fulfill promise. When he says, cast your care upon me for I care for you, he's never not around for us to be able to do that. He's on record in the Bible as the one who will handle all dissenters and all those that are disloyal. He's, he's already gone on record, folks. This is what's going to happen. So do not let your own unfulfilled, self-established expectations deter you from cleaving to Christ. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we allow ourselves to imagine, self-expect, that this is the way life ought to work. This is the way my marriage ought to happen. This is the way church life ought to operate. This is what ought to happen in my community. This is how an election ought to end up. Whatever it is, we are really easy to do this without even realizing we're doing it is we conceptualize expectations in our mind and we hold on to them almost like they're the gospel until someone along comes along and challenges us can you give me chapter and verse on that and we imagine God ought to behave a certain way and then when it doesn't happen we get disappointed in God we see illustrations of that in the Bible right Balaam was an example of that in the book of Numbers. Jonah was an example of that. This is what, God, this is what you ought to do. Judas was an example of that in the 12. 
He had some expectation of what Jesus ought to have been and wasn't. See his treachery and his horrible end. God is on record. We need to know the record is the point. We need to know what he has stated, what he has committed to. What sometimes happens, and I run into people who profess to be believers, and they have drifted away in their devotion and passion and zeal for Christ, and they have a story. They have an explanation. They have an excuse. Well, when I was little, or when I attended a former church, or I had this relative, and then on the story goes. And what ultimately happens is there is this blaming of God. And I'm like, where did God ever promise you to fulfill the expectation you had there? You are writing your own Bible. And that's not fair to God, and you're going to be bringing detriment to yourself in the end. And so we need to recognize whatever people imagined, like we see here, it's not about our imagination. It's about what God's inspiration has said. And so God is faithful. As we think about what is yet to come on planet earth, Christ returning, the one thing that sticks out most to me is the importance of sticking with God. May God help us to do so. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise and the fulfillment of already past prophecies, the reliability of a God who is also loving. Lord, help us to know you better. Help us to not allow us to imagine you different than how you present yourself. Help us not to fill in the gaps and then lean on those gaps as if those were gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be compassionate in making a difference when it comes to the people around us that need Jesus. Lord, may we in the present be doing these right things to the least of Jesus' disciples, his followers. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that it's It's not ultimately about the people that we're even reaching out to, but it's about our Savior, our God, who has given the commission and has given the covenants. Lord, may this be a sacrifice and a movement of worship from us to you on a daily basis. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friend, today maybe. As we draw this series to a close, you find yourself realizing what a wonderful thing it is to have a sovereign God who's in control. It is a wonderful thing. It's also exciting to be able to look ahead, see chapters into the future of what is yet to come, and see how God so wisely and righteously is going to handle things. 
we can get a little fussy sometimes about things being left undealt with in the here and now. But God's watch runs at a different pace than ours does. And we need to be looking at his watch, not ours. We need to trust his calendar, not ours. And you know what? He's given us plenty to do, hasn't he? We're not lacking for what we're supposed to be occupied with. All we have to do is look next door, think about the person in the grocery store, someone that you might meet in the community, and what they need is Jesus. What they need is Christ. And you could be that light, you could be that salt to help draw them to the Savior. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting. People are maybe a little bit more in tune this time of year, although witnessing is not a seasonal thing. But we're talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. Why do you think Jesus came? Why do you think the Son of God took on the form of human flesh? Why do you think he endured all of that? Great conversation starters with people. Take them to the gospel. Show them how much God loves them. And pray for their soul. That God would draw them to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you have not yet come to Christ yourself. You've sensed God's grace at work in your life, but you've pushed back. You've resisted the Spirit of God. Oh, how foolish. Why not today receive him? As many as receive him, he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Believe his word. It's reliable. It's never been proven false. We have the good news of the gospel.